you'd like to lodge a complaint, Riley at calvaryfellowship.org. Um, it's that last character he interviews who we are going to focus on tonight. And frankly, although Riley's film, film clearly was, you know, tongue firmly planted in cheek, humorous, uh, I actually think that that character is the scariest in, in all of Lewis's work, and, and I'll explain why. It's because if you listen to the words that she says consistently, if you pick up the book and you read the chapter that she's present in, all of the language she uses is of self-sacrifice and service and, you know, unending love. And yet we clearly can, can, can tell that's a misunderstood perspective. In fact, in the book you discover that not only has she driven her husband to depression, but eventually it's ruined his health and he's died. And she is the reason that is the case. Um, this, the reason why that is scary to me is because there's something about servanthood, sacrifice, sacrificial love. There's something about... Um, being other-centered that we can believe in and do the opposite of. And clearly, as we look at this character, it's not just wrong, it's destructive. In fact, by the time um, you get to the end of her as a character, her real self comes out and you discover that she's, she, she no longer has an identity apart from her control. If she's not in charge, if she's not, uh, you know, at the reins, if she's not taking care of Robert, then, then her life has lost all meaning. And in the book, actually, she just disappears. She, it says, you smell the smell of a candle that just went out and she's just gone. It's like she finally just pops. Um, tonight, what I'd like to do is look at a passage that, that helps us, I think, to recognize the positive verbiage that she has and the negative underlying reality that tends to skew us in this direction. The challenge I'm going to make to you tonight is that when Jesus in Christianity talks about service and talks about loving others sacrificially and even when it talks to the cross of Christ that it is constantly hijacked and therefore we end up in the same place. Um, the passage is going to come out of Mark chapter 10 tonight. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible tonight, there should be one sitting in the back of a pew. You're welcome to utilize that one. The Gospel of Mark is the second Gospel, second book in the New Testament, and we'll be in chapter 10. if you'll allow me to set up the passage before we read it together. This is one of the occasions in Jesus' ministry where he very clearly states and predicts what's happening, what's going to happen. He says he's on his way to Jerusalem, and then he kind of lays out his itinerary. And this is the third time he's done it in the Gospel of Mark, and the effective thing he says is, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to die, and three days later, raise again. And what happens next is almost a head-scratcher if it weren't so true to human nature, okay? James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, apparently right after this conversation, so maybe they move down the road a little bit more on their walk, they come and they corner Jesus and they say, hey, can we have a little private conversation? And as soon as they've got a private ear, they say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, 
I want you to put John on your left and me on your right. I, I want us to sit at the thrones closest to you when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus has this interesting conversation with them that almost is just trying to get them to recognize their ignorance. And, and they demonstrate that they're incapable of doing so. And he's, he speaks a little bit cryptically and he says, can you really handle what's coming? Can you take the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they say, yeah, sure, sign us up. We're, we're ready to go. And he says, to tell you the truth, that's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, that is what happened to James and John and most of his disciples. They lost their life just like Jesus did for being followers of Jesus. However, however, <laughs> they misunderstand where things are going. I don't know if they think that Jesus is speaking cryptically, symbolically, spiritually. I don't know if they are literally just whistling Dixie because they found the Messiah and just don't hear it at all. But either way, Jesus says, I'm going to a cross, and they hear, I'm going to a throne, and they want to be right there on the front lines of that action, okay? Now, what happens next is the rest of the disciples hear about it, and they are upset. And let's be honest here, they're not upset because James and John made fools of themselves, they're upset because James and John got there first, okay? They're upset because they want to be the preeminent, they want to be the ones in those positions, and they're upset that James and John would take advantage of this little private conversation to get ahead. This is where Jesus sits them down and has the conversation we're going to look at tonight. Let's read it together, it starts in verse 42 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we look at this text tonight, I pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear. I ask, Lord, that as we look at our own hearts and our own actions, and especially as we look at what this actually means, that you would help to realign us around this truth, that we would recognize the profundity of what Jesus says tonight, and that it would be, um, that it would be profound for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. See, here's the problem. Even when we read a passage like this, I think we have a tendency to feel like what Jesus is doing here is changing the rules. Okay? You know how when you open up a brand new board game and you pull out the rules, before you get the rules of the game, you get the objective of the game, right? It tells you what it looks like to play the game and win. You know, so the objective is to get around all the bases and pull all your pieces into home. Or the objective is to have all of the properties until everybody else goes bankrupt or whatever. That's the objective, right? What I'd like to explain tonight is that Jesus here is not presenting different rules, but a different objective entirely, and that makes a complete difference. Okay? Here's the thing. I think the reason why we can deceive ourselves into thinking that our selflessness, or to, into thinking that our selfishness is selflessness, and to think that our controlling, authoritative tyranny is actually benevolent and on behalf of the other person, I think it's ultimately because we don't understand the revolutionary statement that Jesus makes right here. 
We try and filter it through the same understanding we have. And so we say, yeah, it is different than the world. It is different than the Gentiles who rule over one another. It is different than the way they hold authority. But it's different in the how and not the what. It's different in the way or the means, but not in the goal. And I would say that is an impossible place to maintain tonight. And I will also say that it's an incredibly important distinction. Okay? Because I think there's enough Christianity in our culture, in our roots, enough westernization in our own city to recognize the beauty of self-sacrifice, to recognize the importance of service. And it wasn't even a decade ago that once again the great managerial position that was being presented in, in you know, award-winning books was servant leadership. But, but I'm telling you, and we'll see this tonight, we have a tendency to hijack this message, and so we never actually get there, okay? Now, before we really press into that, I just want to fire some shots across the bow. I just want to take a look at a few things here that show us maybe more is going on than we usually think about. Okay. Now, if you're brand new to this text tonight and you've never heard it, principally, like I said, you're already in the same boat as the rest of us. It may be a new text, but not necessarily a new idea. But as we look at it, I'm going to show that maybe more is going on here than we think. Look again at verse 42. Okay, Verse 42, Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So, in other words, what he's saying is, you know how this is done everywhere else. They've just come saying, we want the place of power, we want the place of privilege, we want to be at the top of the food chain, we want to be in charge, right? We want to be vice president of Messiah Jesus, that's what they've asked. And he says, you know how it happens in other places, in other places of business, in other governments, in other nations, in other cultures. You know how it happens everywhere else. And he says, it's basically the same wherever you go. He says, those who are Gentile leaders, rulers, lord it over them. Okay? The idea here, uh, or look at the second way he says it, that their great ones exercise their authority over them. The idea here is that these places are seen primarily in terms of privilege and not of responsibility, right? And so ideas that come along with this is, I've earned the right to be here, therefore I'm going to take full advantages of the privileges, right? I'm at the top of the food chain, so I will treat people how I like. In fact, our culture understands the way this world works because we have a saying in our culture that only cream and bastards rise. That's what Jesus is talking about here right? The idea that if we're really going to be at the top of the pyramid, we're going to have to climb up bodies and step on skulls to get there, okay? And he says it's not going to be like that in the church. It's not going to be like that for Christians. He calls for a revolution, if you will. But like I said, the danger is that we don't see the depth of this. So notice the contrast he gives here. He says you know how it is, and I'm just assuming last night that you do. I'm just assuming that I don't have to spend a lot of time illustrating this reality in every other place. Uh, In fact, I would say you can do a good job of it just looking within religious organizations and the church itself to see that this is somehow and often how these things play out, right? And so, for example, let's take the unpaid internship, shall we? What is the purpose of an unpaid internship? The purpose 
in many organizations is so that those who are in power can have the full benefits of slavery, right? All of the privilege and all of the enjoyment of having somebody that's at your beck and call, and they submit to it. Why? Because they know that's the only way to get ahead, okay? And my fear is we can read this text in such a way that that's where we leave it. That we assume what it's saying here is that the, great, or the best way to get ahead in life is the way of service. Almost like when we tell ourselves honesty is the best policy. And we make just honesty an issue of pragmatism, right? And so really if you want to get ahead in life, if you want to do well, just tell the truth. And the reality is we all know that that might be fine in some occasions. And there's others where it's going to be a choice. Either honesty or advancement, right? problem with service is the same thing. If you really believe that service will get you ahead, ultimately you're still trying to get ahead. How much selflessness does it take to validate your selfish end? Before we look even further, let's, let's just take one illustration. You've got a presidential candidate, right? Somebody who has raised their hand in front of the American population and said, I would like to be in charge. And then you find that presidential candidate serving in a soup kitchen. Now, maybe you don't like said presidential candidate, and so you just go, well, of course they're doing that, because they want to be in charge. And so it's appropriate or beneficial to them to be visibly looking like a servant. Okay, we all, I think, have this impulse in one place or another where we recognize, um, hypocrisy is the wrong word, but we recognize the fragility of that type of service. My question to you tonight would be, what if they do it 300 times? What if they do it 1,000 times? Is it really that different? Now, notice, this is what makes me start to feel differently about this passage. Listen what Jesus says. He says, not so with you. And notice the very first thing, verse 43. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now, does that strike you as odd grammatically? If Jesus was telling us how to get ahead, doesn't it seem strange that he says, whoever's great among you must be your servant? Doesn't that opt you out of the running inherently by the way that he puts it? Right? If anyone's going to be the greatest, it's not going to be you, is implied by the grammar of what Jesus is saying here. That only matters and is only a head-scratcher if Jesus' goal is to show us the path to greatness. Okay? But what if instead what he's doing here is saying, if you want to know what greatness looks like, look at the person serving you. There's a relationship there. There's a similarity, but it's not the same thing. Notice how he continues on. Not only does he say, Any, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, but look at verse 44. <clears throat> whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, at first glance, this sounds like a change in rules, right? It sounds like God has set up a race for the human race to run, and we've got the rules wrong, and so we're actually running away from the goal instead of towards it, and he just says, if you want to be first, you have to be the servant of all. If you want the gold medal, if you want to finish first, you know, it, that's what it sounds like. But hold on to that for a second, and notice with me the fact that he says here, um, something that's relatively surprising. Okay, now we've had both of them. Must be your servant and must be slave of all. We'll get to the language there in just a second, but I want you to notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say, if anyone wants to get ahead in life, if anyone wants to be treated as first, if any of you wants the open slot in the throne next to mine, the vice presidential candidacy, then he must serve me. 
right? He doesn't say that. That's different than the Gentiles. That's different than the authorities in our life, right? That's different than the unpaid internship that says, if you want to get ahead in life, then you're going to have to be my slave. This is not the same game. This is not the same rules being played. Notice also that he uses surprisingly offensive terms, and I think intentionally slow, or excuse me, intentionally so. Jesus here uses the picture of a servant because in this culture, in the picture of a slave, because it's the lowest office you can occupy, okay? And obviously, slavery speaks inherently of no freedom whatsoever, being at the beck and call of and even being owned by another person. But the reality is, that's not the hardest part of this. Because sometimes, serving other people, even like a slave, is easy. If there's a reason to do so. It says all the way back in the book of Genesis, that Jacob traded seven years of labor to marry Rachel. And then it says that those seven years flew by like seven days because he was in love. Right? We've had those experiences, right? Sometimes you have to buckle down and do the hard stuff or the shameful stuff or the embarrassing stuff, and it doesn't bother you because you know what comes at the end of it, okay? There's another thing that sometimes makes service easier or slavery possible. It's if you get to pick who you're serving. And notice he writes that out here. He says slave of all. All, okay? So think of this. This then is not just the people who can reward you for your diligence and give you a leg up in life, but also the ones who have nothing to offer in your future. All. This includes not just the ones who are a pleasure to work for and you don't mind laying your life down for because you trust them. It also includes the awful and the dictator and the horrible. All. Now I think the ground that we stand on when we often approach this passage is starting to shake. Because what possibly is the benefit here? And we're left with only one place to go. And here's what it is. Well, yeah. Because it's not really about these people only he over here. There's only one person I need to please. And what this turns into then is service as a long con. Right? We recognize that doing what we have to to get in head of life, you know, to, to have a, the bigger house, to buy the bigger car, to settle into the great position, to be the CEO, it's not worthwhile. And so we shift, we play the same rules, and we take the longer form and we say, so my life will be sacrificial because the only vote that matters is God's. And what Jesus does next makes that entirely and completely impossible. Okay. Listen to what he says. Verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for. Do you see that word in verse 45? What does that word mean? It means because. Right? He's about to give us the why behind the what. He says if you want to be great, if you want to be first, if this is where your life is going, if this is the way you're to live as Christians, here I'm going to tell you the reason. And I want you to notice what the reason is. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now listen, let's deal with a few elements and then we'll put it all together. First is that phrase, Son of Man. Okay, this is Jesus' favorite self-title. It's the one he uses 
to speak of himself the most often throughout his entire ministry. And it's not just a nickname. It's not just what he calls himself like me, a name I call myself, right? It's son of man, and he's taken it directly out of the Old Testament. Specifically, he's taken it directly out of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, okay? And so when he says the son of man here, he's not just saying even me, he's saying even the Messiah, okay? Now, if you're unfamiliar with the concept of Messiah, beginning at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Jewish story, the beginning of the Old Testament scriptures, is a promise that God is going to send somebody to set things right. A promise that God is going to bring somebody who will overturn the oppression of Israel. That God is going to bring somebody who will fix everything that goes wrong in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Okay? Not only that, but as you continue to read, you discover that this Messiah is the focal point, the center of God's entire plan for the universe. That the coming of this is the change from darkness to light, from nighttime to morning. That it's the great transition from, uh, you know, sadness to rejoicing. It is the pinnacle and epicenter and focal point of all of human history and God's plan. When Jesus says son of man, he's saying for even God's plan, even the point of human history, even the centerpiece of, the God, of God's story in history, that's what he's saying. That's not all he's saying, okay? Because when he refers to the Messiah and you look at how Jesus identifies himself and how his apostles go on to talk about him later, including the gospel authors, you discover that one of the reasons the Messiah came was to show us who God is, okay? John probably makes this, makes this the clearer. He, in his introduction to his gospel in John chapter one, says that no one can see God and live but he who's from the very center of who God is has come and has made him known. Or he says in verse, uh, uh, I'll jump from 1 to 14, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh. That's the story that John is telling. And he makes very clear, even in his introduction, that one of the reasons God becomes flesh is so that God becomes visible understandable, comprehensible. okay? So when he says here, even the Son of Man, he's not just talking about a player in God's plan. He's not just talking about a leader in God's story. He's not just talking about an act in God's program. He's talking about the act. He's talking about the king. He's talking about the Messiah, and he's also talking about God himself. Here's what I'm saying tonight. I'm saying that the world that we know, the world that we inhabit, the ability we have, and obviously, like, like the wife, you don't have to be in a position of power to make it a position of power, right? You don't have to have an office to become a tyrant. That reality is very clear, and, uh, but what we're discovering tonight is that we inherently, as human beings, project that on God and what Jesus is doing here is saying let's talk about who God is and then talk about how we live okay so once again here he doesn't he doesn't simply limit it just to a change in rules or a change in master this is so much more than just realizing your life should be a play to an audience of one and he's the only one who's going to give a critique at the end 
This is so much more than just recognizing that no one else can sign the paycheck, so you might as well go to the source. Because here, he grounds his foundational reason in himself and who God is, and he says, because of me. Don't do this. Do this instead. Serve and be a slave of all because even me, and let's handle that word even. What does it mean? Why is it in this sentence? It means out of all examples, this one's the pinnacle, right? Even the son of man, right? So he doesn't just point to an equal or even a superior. He points to the superior, okay? I want you to recognize something tonight. Whatever the distance is between you and your employer, or the distances between you as a citizen of this country and the president, or the distance we can even imagine between us and the ruler of the world, that distance is inherently smaller than the distance between whoever that person is and God, right? But notice what he says here. He says, for even the Son of Man, even the one at the top of the food chain, even the one at the height of the pyramid, even the capital A authority, did not come to be served. Now you need to hear that tonight because it's not what you would expect. Write for yourself your own version of how God makes himself known. Come up with your own thinking of how it is that we've even asked for God to reveal himself. Isn't it simply that we just want him to de demonstrate his presence and his power so we know that he's there? And if we knew he was there, then of course we would serve him because he's God and we're not. When God finally does invade human history, when he finally does pull back the veil and make himself known, he does it in Jesus Christ, and what does he do? He doesn't come to be served. Think about that. God's interest in humanity is not them serving him. That's what he says here. At the focal point, of God's plan is God coming to interact with mankind not to receive service from them. And what I'm telling you is we inherently smuggle into our concept of God this idea that says the way this works is just like it does in the world, we just have to make sure we're serving the right person. And yet Jesus comes to make God known, to fulfill God's plan, to set everything right, and he doesn't come to be served. I mean, think of this. However it is you've always prayed or wondered or imagined God invading the universe, instead he shows up and he's born into anonymity in a cave to a family that's been completely, you know, um, set on hard times, into poverty. He grows up into the, on the wrong side of the tracks. And even when he does his ministry, Jesus refuses to do miracles visibly and publicly to prove who he is. And oftentimes when he heals people, he says, hey, don't tell people about this. And we don't see him looking around and saying, I am God, bow down and worship me, and then proving it with a bunch of fireworks. We find something completely different. We find the most sacrificial and other-centered life ever demonstrated in human history. We find him constantly being a place of um, psychological turmoil, of physical tiredness, and yet constantly choosing others. There's an occasion in Mark's gospel where the disciples come back and he realizes they need the equivalent of a retreat. They've been running full gear and they need to get away, so they literally go out into the desert just because when you're Jesus, that's the only way you get away 
from all the action. You get away from the people, and the people follow him into the desert. Now, wouldn't it be completely appropriate for Jesus to say, hey, I love you guys. I'll be clocking in on, you know, 9 a.m. on Monday. If you could just give me the weekend and respect my personal space. And it says, and Jesus saw the crowds as sheep without a shepherd and had compassion on them, so he healed them and he taught them. We see this all the way through his life. In fact, notice what it says here. It doesn't just say he didn't come to be served. Notice what it says next, but to serve. The God of the universe made himself known, came to mankind to reveal himself, and accomplished his entire plan for humanity through serving them. And then he brings us to the pinnacle in the next sentence, and he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. Now, clearly, this is an allusion to the cross. Clearly here, what he's pointing to is the same thing he told them at the beginning of this chapter. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And here, as he says in other places, he's not dying because he's done anything wrong. He's not dying because people misunderstand him and are making a mistake. Ultimately, he's dying because this is according to the plan, and this is how he's going to set things right. He says, I've come to give my life. I've come to die. And notice that word ransom. What does that imply? Okay. A ransom is when you're in a situation that you can't fix and someone else offers their resources to fix it on your behalf. Now, when you talk about life here, because that's what we're talking about, it becomes a little bit more awkward. Because what we discover here and what the Bible constantly says is that we are effectively on death row. And Jesus willingly offers his life in the place of ours. And I want to be really clear here. Because you can take this word ransom and you can think, well, maybe that's because we live in a really bad part of town, right? You think of a a millionaire whose kid gets kidnapped and held for ransom, that type of thing. But the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that it was because of the evil around us that God had to be our hero. And it's not just because of foolishness. Right? We can imagine putting ourselves in a place where somebody has to sacrifice their life for us because we made a mistake, because we didn't really think it through, because we put ourselves in danger and they love us enough to do it. That's not what the Bible says this is about at all. When it says ransom here, the implication is that we put ourselves in this predic- predicament entirely and completely through rebellion. And not just rebellion against any odd person, but rebellion against God himself the self-same one who became a man to die in our place. Okay? So when Jesus says slave of all, he knows what he's talking about. And we know he meant it because as he's dying on the cross, he looks at the same people who unjustly put him there, who through their corruption and their jealousy came up with lies and pushed him through a false court case from those who had forsaken him and rejected him and betrayed him. He looks on those who mock him and spit on him, and despite the fact that he's lived this incredible life of love and all of the people standing there, no doubt, no people whose lives have been you know, completely reversed because of Jesus' love, because of his hand, because of his healing, because of his miracles. And he says, Father, forgive them. See, the thing is, 
we tend to think that the most important facet of who God is, is his power. But how powerful did God look in the cross of Jesus Christ? When those mocking can say, if you really are the Messiah, come on down. Remove yourself from that cross. And he doesn't do so. What greater sign of weaknesses in there is, is there in a God who allows himself to be brutally murdered by the people he created? And you say, well, the reason God is, is worthy of worship, the reason these are these things, the reason we owe him his service is because he's beautiful. He's the only thing in the universe that is tremendously good, and that's true. But look at the cross, the place where he says, here's how you know who I am. It's awful. It's shameful. It's ugly. It's unspeakable. And once again, it's not what we were expecting. When you say, God, show yourself to me, can you imagine picturing a bloody, dying man on a, in a cross and God saying, there you go. Now you know for sure. You see, the Bible says that God is powerful, but it doesn't say that God is power. The Bible says that God is beautiful, but it doesn't say that God is beauty. The Bible, however, does say that God is love. Not just loving, but love. And if you're trying to understand the cross of Jesus Christ, the only way to make sense of it is in the context of a God who is love. In fact, John the Apostle tells us in one of his letters, by this we know what love is, that while we were still sinners, while we were the very enemies of God, Paul says, Christ died for us. That's the evidence. That's the picture. That's who God is. Okay? Now here's the thing. When we take on this idea that says the way that we get God on our side is through serving him, or the way we get ahead in life is, is through these things, we're picturing the same authorities above us that we encounter in other places in our lives. And I just want to point out to you tonight that never once in the entire Bible, as far as I know, does it say that God is proud. And what we communicate when we think that way is that it's okay for God to be proud because he's the only one who's worthy of it. But the reality of who God is is inherently humble. What we see in the cross is not just God laying aside his glory and doing something that's not glorious. Not just him laying aside his being worthy of worship and, and enduring mocking and all of these negative things. What I'm trying to say tonight is the cross shows not who God became for us, but who God is. And God is humble. The Christian concept of salvation demonstrates this. Okay? Because if it's truly by grace meaning that God freely offers the gift of salvation, the restoration of your life, forgiveness of your sins, if he truly offers it because of what he's done on your behalf and not because of yours, and all you have to do is receive it, if that's really the case, then C.S. Lewis says that's the complete evidence of divine humility. Because wouldn't it be appropriate? Wouldn't it be appropriate? Can't we imagine a God who you know, uh, we get to our end of our rope, we recognize that we've dug a hole we can't get out of, we have no resources left, the ship is going down, and so we cry out for help. Can't we imagine God appropriately going, you know what, I was worthy of worship when you thought everything was fine. I was totally better than all of the riches you ever had. I was completely stronger than your self-reliance when you were at your strongest, and now at your weakness, when I'm the only option and your choices are hell or me and you choose me how offensive 
And yet, God's divine humility is he says, that's it, that's all I was waiting for, let's go. You see, what we see in this passage is that God is a servant. Not just God became one. Not just God became humble. He is humble. Not just that God did a tremendously loving act. He is love. The cross is not something God did. It's the greatest demonstration of who he is. And if that's the case, then everything you know is wrong. And the issue is not you're not uh, you know, sacrificing enough to get ahead in life. It's that you've wrongly imagined that, you know, here's what I'm trying to say. Let me put it in one more term. God is not selfish. He's not self-interested. And the cross demonstrates that. And like I said, the problem is, usually our model of service ultimately comes down to self. Usually our model, model of sacrifice would be better labeled as um, investment, right? And so we just take the long path, we choose the hard road, because it's, and I've heard this before, and there, there's a sense where it's true, we look at Jesus' life and it's like, yeah, there's a crown at the end of it, but you've got to go through the cross, And there's a truth in that reality, but let me just point out something to you tonight, that when we read in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto, but instead made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant uh, and became like a slave obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him. That we have a tendency to read that as, therefore the way to exaltation is, is downward but that's not necessarily the full reality. What I believe Jesus is saying tonight is that service and sacrifice is greatness, not that it's the path to greatness. And what I'm telling you is every time we detour and we derail and every lower model that is only different in degrees instead of different in kind, every time we try and pursue self-sacrifice by way or for the goal of self-interest, it will finally and fully and eventually make itself known. And what I'm saying is if self-sacrifice is truly good, if love is really where the meaning of life is found, then it is only going to be understood completely and wholly as a totally different thing. That if you don't understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, then you will always be tainted and derailed by yourself. And it is only this act of the God who created us, who loves us in such a way that freely and willingly serves us and lays down his life, that it can really not just change the rules, but change the game. Let me just point out some symptoms that have come to mind in what these other forms of service looks like. Okay, When the work itself is good, then it doesn't feel like toil, even after a long time. That doesn't mean it's not hard, right? I think we all recognize that there's a difference between the sleep of toil, where we haven't gotten what we want and we're working really hard and so we hardly sleep at all, and the sleep of a, go- you know, a job done, right? Where the work, the act itself is paid for and so we sleep well, we sleep good. Another one has to do with gratitude, right? When Jesus says slave of all here, that means the ungrateful. It means those who never notice. It also means those who, no matter what you're doing to help them change, never change. 
And the reality is, if God is this great God of self-sacrifice, love, and service, then outcome aside, love, self-sacrifice, and service is inherently good. And therefore, it's inherently satisfying. I'll give you just one more symptom of what this looks like. It looks like entitlement. Eventually, we get to a point where we forget the whole concept of grace. We forget the whole reality of that Jesus paid it all. And we start to think, you know what? At this point, God, you really owe me. I've been faithful for so long. These other guys over here, they seem to have everything they want and they're doing it wrong and I know it and I have to watch as the wicked prosper and you shake your fist at God and you say, why have you forgotten me? But if sacrifice is greatness, if that's the real beauty of life, if that's where goodness is found and you know it and you're pursuing it because that's who God is and you were made in his image, those things don't come up in the same way. I want to make just one clarification before we close. That doesn't mean that it's not hard. It doesn't mean that it's not sad when it's unproductive. It doesn't mean that it's not coupled with, um, with all of the human experiences. It just means that you can say, even so. It means like David Livingston in the heart of dark Africa, you can say, I've never made a sacrifice. I chose the good life. You can say like Psalm 16, as David says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And I think too often we read that, and he's just talking about the lot that he was dealt, the cards that he was dealt. And he says, I was given a good hand. And we go, well, yeah, you're the king. Have you looked at David's life? David, who was chased around the country by a jealous and dethroned father-in-law? David, who even when he came into the throne, half the country said, we don't want anything to do with you. David, who watched as his own son, stepped into his house and said, I'm king now. See you later, Dad. He looks at the whole thing and he says, pleasant places. And when you couple that with another instant in his life where David's own sin has brought a terrible plague on the people of Israel. And Nathan comes to him and he says, the only way you're going to set this right is with sacrifice. You have to do something to stop the consequences. And he goes to a, to a man who has a farm next door and he says, I need to build an altar right here. And he says, you're the king, take it. And he says, no, I'd never offer to God anything that costs me nothing. When you put those two ideas together, here's what you find. You find the reality that the sacrifice is love, that the service is good, that God is humble and therefore calls us to humility. Not God is proud and therefore we better shape up and recognize he's greater than us but that greatness itself is redefined in the cross of Christ. That the game itself is changed in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, it takes a little bit of honest introspection to look at when service and sacrifice and love goes wrong in our life. It takes the ability to be able to see that controlling wife that Lewis paints in ourselves and realize that we talk as if we're benevolent, but really we're just a benevolent dictator. We talk as if we're a servant, but we've really taken the reins. And if the cross of Christ means anything, it means not just that that's the wrong move and very offensive to God, 
but that it will destroy us. That it reduces us down to less than the image of God we were created in. That the value of power is that it's laid down in weakness out of love. And the value of beauty is that it endures tremendous ugliness out of love. And the value of sacrifice is that the sacrificer always says it's worth it. In and of itself. Pray that you teach us these truths tonight deep in the core of our being. I pray for any of us who have found ourselves working to impress God, working to earn your favor, working to play by the rules and sacrifice deeply and grovel in humility so that the proud God will exalt us, that our eyes would be awakened to the reality of who you are. And I ask this boldly, coming before the God who loves to serve and serves in love and freely gives of himself. I pray these things in your name tonight. Amen.